and welcome to Through the Pinard, your conversational podcast talking to midwives around the world about the research they are doing to improve midwifery practice. This research can range from small quality improvement programs and projects to those starting partway through or just finishing their postgraduate studies and to those that have been there, done that and got the t-shirt. So settle back and enjoy the conversation. And remember, you can continue the conversation on Twitter after you finish listening. Thank you for joining me. As per usual, could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, everyone. So I'm Gillian McKelvin. Uh, I am a midwife by background. Um, I actually trained in Malta. Oh. Yes. <laughs> and long story short uh, I've been a midwife since 2010 now mm-hmm. yes since 2010 and since then after practicing in all areas of midwifery in Malta I wanted to experience something different mm-hmm. so I moved to the UK and I started practicing as a midwife in the UK um, while at the same time I started a PhD and now I'm a program leader and senior lecturer in midwifery at the university in the UK. So apart from land size and population size, the difference between Malta and the UK, just very different, what was midwifery like in Malta then? I think if you had asked me this question before I moved to the UK, my answer would have been very different. But now Ah. having experienced both, um, I would say midwifery in Malta is a dream. we had, true enough, we do not quite so have midwifery-led care yep. in Malta or continuity of care that we know it as, like from antenatal labor and postpartum. But the practice in, in Malta, when you are with women, you are genuinely with women. You're not running around um, looking after 10 other women and not having the time of day to genuinely look after every single need for that woman. So I remember when I used to work on the postnatal wards, I used to have three women in my care, Mm -hmm. and we used to spend hours with them, supporting Mm -hmm. them with whatever they might need, breastfeeding support, just compassionate care, advising about anything and everything. Um, so, So, yeah. I would still pr- probably practice in Malta because um, I, I do think it was beautiful and it, we were genuinely, women were at the centre of our care from that perspective. And yes, we had mostly consultant-led care. Okay. Um, in Particularly in antenatal settings, um, women most of the time went to their obstetrician privately mm-hmm. for care. Um, they would not really go to a midwife. and. But then once we go into the interpartum area, even though once again, we only had one unit, mm-hmm. uh, one interpartum unit, it catered for all women, whether right. they were women needing universal care or additional needs, having additional care needs. Um, the, the, the obstetricians were always hovering around. Mm-hmm. I think but in time, even when I, before I was a midwife, um, we used to see the obstetricians go into every room to nice. put their plan of care. Um, and by the time I was leaving Malta, that had reduced significantly where the obstetricians would ask, am I needed in your room ah. you know, or not? So I know even now from talking to colleagues that ha- has changed a bit. So we still have our universal care needs, women who are just looked after by a midwife interpartumly and then others obviously who need additional care. Obviously, there are things which I experienced in the UK, which I wouldn't be able to experience in Malta, like pool birds. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have those vaginal breech birds or vaginal twin birds. Um, so those are key differences. So the obstetricians don't do those? They'll go straight to cesarean? They'll go straight to cesarean. That's sad Although, they're losing the skills. Yes, yes. And I remember I, I had published a piece on vaginal breech births and I created a piece, bit of controversy Good. because, uh, because yes, there's lots of now unskilled mm. um, situations and midwives in terms of vaginal breech births. 
but there is definitely keen an interest among Maltese midwives that they definitely do want to take these forward and you know upskill the midwives in Malta. And I know they have been in many different um, uh, and places yeah. and things which do even with aromatherapy, and so so yeah, it's definitely something which I can see is growing. It's just difficult to get the obstetricians on board a bit. But you increase the women's choice by having the skills to be able to offer that as an option. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's why there is this intense interest from most of the Maltese midwives and quite a few obstetricians as well to increase this choice. And to make sure that everyone is upskilled and has the training required to make sure that these options are given um, to all women. Um, but I think it's still a work in progress. And it's but it's definitely good to see the progress which yeah. has happened. I've been absent um, from Malta from talking to my ex-Maltese colleagues. It is very exciting to see. Uh, so that's why I always say definitely if I had to practice midwifery again, it would be Malta. So how did you find then the culture change? I won't say culture shock, but the culture change with then doing midwifery in the UK? It was quite a bit of a shock, um, I think, I must admit. I mean, part of it, and this was, this is a bit funny, part of it was the language. Yeah, because they quite many times understand what was being said. I mean, yes, English is not my first language. Um, we speak Maltese, and obviously, I've been speaking English since I was like five. But still, when I moved to Liverpool, um, yeah. they do have quite a different way of talking, and many times I didn't quite used to understand what's going on. And that was, so there was a bit of a joke running around, and, and when my understanding of Scouse. Um, we've got over that now. Um, but from a culture point of view, I remember feeling uneasy working in the midwifery-led unit um, where the women may not have a continuous CTG. Mm -hmm. And I'm about to give them any sort of analgesia. I'm like, oh, you know, well, well, what, but what if the CTG isn't good? You know, there's no CTG. So I remember using feeling anxious. And I used to revise and revise mm -hmm. all the time just to make sure. And equally, I remember having my first pool birth. Uh, I remember telling myself, oh, what do I do with my hands? Where do my hands go? Yep. Um, but after the initial, I think, few weeks, and I, I must admit that the midwives were really supportive and understanding of my background because I, I kind of like came from a very high risk um, care point of view. And they were very supportive and I I did get used to it. I, I did then start feeling a lot more confident and understanding of the physiology of the woman and of labor. I think I understood it a lot more mm -hmm. once I practiced um, understanding and needing to know what is physiologically normal and what isn't and when you need to act. So I learned um, to drink tea, you know while watching and supporting women and many times I felt like I didn't even need to be in the room I felt mm -hmm. like I was in the way mm -hmm. um, and I think that was the biggest challenge for me I didn't feel useful anymore um, and and women looked at me and just my presence was comforting enough whereas I felt like I needed to do I was used to just doing <laughs> So how long did it take you to change and feel comfortable? Oh, I don't know, actually. I think it was a gradual change because mm -hmm. I remember then one day out of the blues, this time I was working in an interpartum, you know, high-risk area again, I found myself just sitting in the room and this lovely lady, she had an epidural and she was fast asleep, but I found myself just comfortably just sitting there, not doing anything. And every now and then, this woman would open her eyes a bit and just look around the room, see me sitting there, and go back to sleep. Yeah. And and then I realized, oh, okay, I think look at look at me. I don't. I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here, literally drinking my tea and making notes and things like that. 
And I just realized that suddenly I felt comfortable um, in sort of like my new role, mm -hmm. midwife. Yeah, so that was quite a challenge, but I I, I loved it. Comforting, yeah. Actually, how did you get into midwifery in the first place? Like, what got you into midwifery in Malta? Well, before I did midwifery, I was studying archaeology and history of art. <gasps> oh, how fabulous! It's still something which I enjoy and love to bits, and I always tell myself, I think one day. I, I might end up doing archaeology and history of art again. Um, so I remember I was in between the, the two subjects whether I was going to do midwifery or whether I was going to do archaeology and history of art. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not clever enough to do midwifery. They only take 10 students yep. in Malta per year. Wow. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to be able to be one of those 10. So I didn't even try applying. and I just went straight into archaeology and history of art, and I loved it. And then when we came towards, you know, enrolling onto the second year of the program, I was like, oh, what if, you know, what if should I have tried to apply? So I, I did. I applied. And I remember being interviewed um, by now the head of midwifery at the University of Malta, um, Professor Josefina Tart, who I owe my real future to because she really inspired me. Uh, she, I remember she asked me, why do you want to be a midwife? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, my mother had an awful time with the birth of my sister because she was left alone and no one would believe her when she was experiencing pain. Um, and it was my dad in the end who delivered my sister and saved oh. my sister. And I said, and I want to stop that from happening. I said, I want to help all women have a beautiful birth. And she and I remember she said that's quite a lot to expect of yourself. <laughs> and I said, Well, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna help all women have a positive birth. Um and obviously then when I actually did become a midwife, I I then I find that as quite a challenge for me to prevent all difficult births, all traumatic births from happening. So then that's why I went started my masters. I did my masters um via distance learning at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK and I wanted to start understanding more about traumatic childbirth so that I because I said you know if I understand them I can prevent them yep. I still want to prevent all women from having difficult but I still want them to have a beautiful birth yeah. so that's why I went into doing my masters and I did one I did it I did a systematic review on the psychosocial implica implications of having a, a traumatic childbirth. And I think that was really the start of it for me, where I realized, well, actually, there's more that I can do. Mm. I need to understand this more, and I can help women have more positive birth experiences, which then led me to my PhD and thinking about how do I go about this. I've quickly realized that there was so much literature on traumatic birth, mm -hmm. why they happen, you know, what the experience of it is, what the implications are, but we still quite did not understand what helps women have a positive, that, that transcendental birth experience. And that was what going to be my focus. And even more than that, I was starting to ask myself after having, you know, spoken with women, did my research, it became quickly evident that some women may have what one might think is a traumatic birth, like a forceps or a bantus, um, but she goes on to have a perfectly, she reports a normal yes. birth, yep. birth, whereas others may have what we think is perfect birth, you know, quick, normal vaginal birth, and yet this woman is traumatized by her experience. So I was trying to connect the dots, I'm like, what, what's happening? Why is this happening? And that's what then led me to cellucigenesis and looking at birth as a continuum mm -hmm. of experiences and not just it being a dichotomous, either traumatic or positive. Um, there must be something in between, yep. or at least that's what I was theorizing at the time. Um, so, yes, then, then that led me to the PhD looking at birth experiences from a cellucigenic point of view because I wanted to understand 
exactly how we can help women achieve more positive births and understand whether there is an in-between mm. see whether we can prevent them from happening prevent so, trauma what was a surprising finding from your masters that you weren't expecting from my masters there was just so much suffering right so much suffering after a traumatic birth and i i didn't think even though you know you hear about it when you actually start reading women's stories and reading their quotes, um, I, I, I was very shocked by how much suffering that they have endured and many a times perfectly preventable suffering um, simply from, you know, a bit of kindness and compassion from a midwife or an obstetrician or more information being provided about what's happening, you know, offering some sort of resemblance of control to the woman. But the findings were you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, suicidal ideations, infanticide ideations, you know, divorce and separation from partners. It was intense. It was a lot to take in. I couldn't believe that it was this significant mm. from, from an experience which should be this amazing, beautiful experience yeah. where you get to meet your child. Um, instead, it turned into this horror film almost and some women did express you know and use very strong language to describe how they felt about their birth so your phd you're looking at kind of like the more positive or the non-negative view but how did you protect yourself in your masters when you're getting all of this this horror and this negativity and this kind of shock, how did you protect yourself and your mental health during that time of reading all these events? I think during that time I was still living in Malta. I was actually still living with my family at home, with my mom, my sisters. So I had a very good support network around me. Um, I was working at the hospital in Malta where I had all my colleagues, you know, women, midwives I trained with yep. so I I could easily talk and discuss with them you know if I was shocked by anything I, would, I could easily tell them this is what I found but I was equally very often distracted by other things to mm -hmm. be honest um by my family life and you know the events and my boyfriends at the time <laughs> so I I think actually to think about it now that you're asking the question I don't think I ever felt that distraught by the findings. I think because of there were so many other distractions happening at the same time. Whereas when I was doing my PhD, because at the time I was doing my PhD in the UK, mm -hmm. and that is when I found myself alone, you know, away from my family, away from my, from my friends. I didn't really quite know my colleagues well back then. I think I was impacted a lot more by wow. what I was reading and finding and the entire journey in itself. So I think I found that a lot more challenging than the masters. And that is and so you were before COVID, during COVID? Before, the, yeah. before. Because I'll never forget that my viva was my PhD viva was on the last day before we went into lockdown. <gasps> oh man. I was the last face-to-face -face person <gasps> of, at this university at the University of Central Lancashire. Um, and the next day we went into lockdown. Wow. Because so I know that I've spoken to several people, both well, for the podcast and also outside, that being an international student during COVID, their mental health, it was the isolation of not being able to get a hug from their families because they couldn't go home. And it was that we had, well, worldwide, we had that expectation that, Homes only ever a flight away. We can always go home. It's it's expensive if we go at the wrong time, but we always had the option until COVID. Um, so doing it away from home in another country, in another culture, and not have that support network is very isolating. I, I believe them. And obviously, I always had the option to go home because I was before COVID. But I remember many a days phoning my mom, you know, on WhatsApp, Zoom, Facebook, whatever, and crying 
because I'm like, mom, don't make me do this. I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. Yep. Um, and she always kept me going. My mom always kept me going. And I used to have that ment- that breakdown, that cry, and I felt better afterwards. But yeah, I, I do feel like I never had the opportunity to you know to hug someone mm. to tell them how much I was struggling um, and how lonely it felt to do a PhD in a foreign country. You know, I've just relocated. And equally, I felt like there were very few people I can actually discuss yeah. the academic side, the academic difficulty of doing a PhD while practicing because I didn't know of anyone else who was doing it. Yeah. Um, I had, I made a few friends through the PhD from seminars, which used to be held, but they lived in Germany and in Israel. Oh. <laughs> so, so once again, <laughs> we had our WhatsApp group and we supported each other through that, but there was no one ever physically who I could sit down with and moan or cry about how hard I'm finding it yeah. and how lonely it can be. So that was a challenge. Um, the high expectations and not knowing whether you can meet those expectations. Mm-hmm. So how did you, because you did your master's and your PhD through the same university. How did you go about picking your supervisors? Did you get a say in who you wanted as supervisors or was it part of the program that you kind of got allocated supervisors? For my master's, I was allocated my supervisor. Um, so I had no choice, I, to be honest. I didn't know what a supervisor was at the time of my <laughs> master's. <laughs> yep, there is that. <laughs> but for my PhD, I did have a choice. And I wanted um, my same supervisor to be my director of study, Professor Jill Thompson, uh, who was my rock mm-hmm. um, throughout all of this. And I did have a choice as well for my other supervisor, who was Professor Sue Down, uh, because I knew she had a depth of understanding in the topic that I was interested in. Yep. Even then, in the end, you know, towards the vibe, when I was coming to the examiners and who's going to do the examining, um, I had full control, so to speak, yep. of who I wanted to be or not be my examiner. Um, so they were very supportive. It was, it was, it was a very good approach, um, I, I, and I felt completely comfortable with my supervisors that I can discuss with them anything and everything. And I'm pretty sure I got on my supervisor's nerves towards the end when I started to get more comfortable in my role and my topic of my PhD, where I would argue something, and she might say, "Oh, this doesn't sound like." I'm like, "No, no, yes, it is. This, yeah. this is what I mean." <laughs> I'm not pretty sure I got on her nerves a bit. That's that change in level that occurs. You started as a novice with them being the experts. And then as you kind of grow and develop, you become kind of like that collegial. And then because your head's in the data so much more, it's when you're having those discussions, it's kind of like, and they're doing so many other things as well, that it's like, no, 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 trust me, it's it's here. I can tell you what line it is and what page it's on because you're living the data, whereas they're kind of like popping in and out of several kind of like students' work. Yes, you know what? I used to feel so guilty about challenging them because when you're the expert, I still look up to them to this very day. Um, They are still a lot more expert than I am. But I I used to feel guilty about challenging them on my topic until I realized, you know what? The journey of the PhD is to become an independent, you know, researcher. And this is my subject. And if if I don't challenge this, then what else can I challenge? Yep. This is the one thing which I'm currently expert on. There's nothing else I'm expert on yet. <laughs> so this is where I should feel comfortable challenging my supervisors. But it did take me a while to feel comfortable. I used to say something like, oh, sorry, but I don't think you're right on this. I'm so sorry. But it is a change in relationships and to do it respectfully. And it does depend on your relationship with your supervisor as well because some people never get to that stage. They never feel comfortable enough and it still stays as a almost like a submissive relationship. But when it gets to the equal that you can feel comfortable saying, no, actually, I disagree, then, yeah, you're meant to be the expert at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. At the end, I think it took me about the fourth year when I started to challenge my supervisor. It was 
it wasn't easy. I remember I used to complain, but then my husband, like, she's saying I need to do this. I'm not doing that. This is not right. She doesn't quite understand my data yet. But as you said, um, I know, for example, my supervisor, she was supervising so many other students at the same time. So as you said, that it's difficult for supervisors to keep track mm. um, and exactly where they stand with the data. And now that I'm a supervisor, I feel the same. I'm like, oh, can you remind me what you what you found yeah. again? Uh, can you just remind me where we are with this project? Um, so I completely understand and get it now. But that's actually a good opportunity for the student to be able to articulate where they're up to and what they've learned and to use that as a, another way to summarise because between that and the last meeting, they've read hopefully some stuff, they've thought about some stuff. It's like, I know last week we talked about this, but since then I've done this and I kind of think it's more to do with that. Exactly, yes, definitely. It makes such a huge difference. And I think it also helps, at least it used to help me as when I was the student. I mean, I used to be, keep very rigorous notes, but it used to help me articulate, as you said, where I'm going with, with my thoughts, yeah. with my with my ideas. Sometimes they were in my head and I couldn't quite articulate mm. them, but having to articulate them, having no choice, then suddenly things started to make sense, making sort of make sense for me. Like, oh, yes, this is my aim. This is the aim yeah. of my project. And yeah. I can articulate it in a sentence of beating around the bush. Now it makes sense. So it was a very good, very good experience. Yeah, I, I make sure that I record all of my sessions and whether I'm a supervisor or a student because you can then just go back and fully engage in the conversation at the time without madly trying to write notes down. Or if you write a notebook down, you just kind of look at what's a, the timestamp of the recording, quickly write that down and kind of go back and then kind of when you're listening to it again, it's like, ah, that's what they were talking about. Yeah, you see, I never had that opportunity. All our meetings, nearly nearly all of them used to be face-to-face. You know, pre-COVID times, everything yeah. was face-to-face. Record on your phone? And, and I, I never recorded anything. And oh. I used to take notes. Or sometimes I used to keep them all in my head and then after oh. I go outside the office quickly writing down what I remember. <laughs> um, so were you part-time or full-time? I was part-time. Right. So what um, did you so do whilst you were studying? I was working as a midwife um full time and um I was doing that my PhD part time and I think my entire life was consumed by work and the PhD. Yeah. And I lived alone in a in one room mm-hmm. and one bathroom and my life was completely consumed by it. And don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it. I loved the PhD journey. I would do it again and I would definitely do it again but now looking back I I can clearly see how I had no life but the PhD Mm. and work. So did you do anything to counterbalance that so like obviously we know that PhD students have a high level of isolation and mental health um, issues and times when they do crumble so did you do anything to maintain your physical mental health whilst you were doing work and PhD? I think for my physical health, um, I ate healthy a lot. I did lots of yoga. Mm. Um, for my mental health, I don't know how I did it. How I don't know how I survived the five years. I keep trying to look back and think about what happened in those five years, um, who I spoke to, who was my support system. Because I was alone mm. in the UK. Um, I had friends in the UK, but as I said before, no one that I felt comfortable enough with to express my struggles in terms of the academic sides of the PhD. And yes, I spoke to my mum, my sisters, um, about how hard it was sometimes. But I don't know how I managed the rest. Mm. I was, as you said, yes, in isolation most of the time but I do think that my supervisor was my rock yeah because I did get in touch with her so many times when I felt like I was losing the plot and she was the one that saved me each and every time and she made things look so simple each and every time (laughs) they do don't they no and she was always like you know don't worry this is normal 
you can do this. I remember having a writer's block for at least four months. I couldn't write a single word. And she's like, that's okay. No worries. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I didn't know I should worry. I thought that was awful. I haven't written anything for four months. I felt so bad. Um, but she always helped ground me. Mm. So I think she was my support system when I was going through it all. And then towards the end, I think towards like my last two years of my PhD, when I had by then made some more friends in the UK, I felt better because I had a wider support system um, with my colleagues. But in the beginning, I think I would say the first two years, because I'm, I'm a very introverted person, it takes me a while to open up to someone. <laughs> and it, it was definitely hard and I did feel very isolated and she was my only one. Because I knew her from my master, so I felt yeah. comfortable with her already. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how I survived it, but here we are today. We have, which is good. How did you? So you would have your study plan or your study kind of routine would have changed then from those early years to when you kind of had a bit more of a um, a support network. So how did you set up your study whilst you were working? Did you have some days where it was all study or did you get up early or study late at night? Whenever I was working, it was only ever work. I never did anything else. So I think I used to work between three to four days a week and that was it. Um, I never had any energy afterwards to work on my academic anyway. So I really used to put dinner slump in front of the TV or read a book, do my yoga, or maybe go for a quick walk yeah. around my block, nothing major, because I didn't really, it was a new country for me. I didn't really feel safe outside yeah. in the dark or anything. I didn't know it very well. Um, and then I studied and worked on the other days. Um, I tried to leave a day off every week Yep. Um, to just wind down. Um. But that's how, that's how I had managed it. Mm-hmm. Then I remember when I left practice and I started um, my role as a university lecturer, that was a bit of a difference then because I was working nine to five, Monday to Friday. And so I was like, oh, now when do I work? I don't have <laughs> three days off a week anymore. So that was different. So I started ha- having to work in the evening and that was a lot more difficult yeah. than working as a full-time midwife. How did you celebrate when you finished? I don't think I did. <gasps> what? I don't think I, I I don't think I did celebrate. I remember I know my colleagues at work, they because it yes, no, I didn't celebrate because as I said, the, the next day after my viva, we went into lockdown. Everyone was consumed with COVID, with yep. lockdown, and I was forgotten. Everybody forgot that Julianne got her PhD. And I remember, I didn't quite feel upset, but I remember feeling it that whenever someone got their PhD, an email was always sent, congratulations, doctor, whoever, they got their PhD, da 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 da. And I never got that email. It was oh. never sent to everyone. I'm like, Oh, where's my email? <laughs> and so no, I never, I never got to celebrate, and I, I never got to celebrate. No, and obviously I got a card. I got a congratulations card from my supervisor, which I still have. Um, and I had a obviously congratulations from my mom and my sisters, and they sent me a letter just with the same, with the first doctor Julianne, and but no, I never actually got to celebrate it. But no. you, you know that it's never too late to celebrate. You can still celebrate now. Do you reckon? <laughs> Absolutely. The amount of work that goes in to a PhD should be celebrated. Yeah, I suppose. I remember then after lockdown, um, my colleagues, they had a, a bit of a get-together because there was one who was going on maternity leave, one who got a new job, one who, and they're like, oh, and Julianne got her PhD. Like, <laughs> year and a half ago take it, take it <laughs> uh, but so no no I actually never did get to have a proper I wouldn't even know how to celebrate now do something that you've always wanted to do tick something off your bucket list it's been one of the cool things about doing this 
the interviewing is listening how people have celebrated and it's either family dinners or colleagues celebrating or going overseas or buying a pair of fancy shoes like it's it's it doesn't matter what it is it's something that you feel that you want to do or you deserve to do because you've succeeded in something that a lot of people never attempt and of the people who do attempt it not everyone actually finishes and completes it so it's about celebrating your determinedness and your stubbornness to see it through that's true that's true. Maybe I need to plan something. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I always say yes. COVID took it away from me. Took away my email, my celebratory oh. email. <laughs> there is something nice about seeing that first email with doctor and someone calling you doctor um, after you do it. There is, yes. I must admit there is. And that's why I remember saying, oh, I didn't get the email. But having said that, you know, afterwards, I even random things. Um, even not long ago, I think we were having a new broadband set up and the woman asked me, so is it Miss or Mrs? Oh. And my husband said, Mrs. I'm like, well, oh, doctor, please. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> and, that's, and that's kind of when you're talking about, well, there's a whole different discussion about patriarchal kind of like naming of men are just Mr. and women are according to their marital status. And it's irre- it's kind of irrelevant, but it's like, no, nah, I've got the doctor. I'm going to use it. It's kind exactly, of yes. absolutely. And I always assume if it's kind of doctor, um, it'll be the male that's the doctor and not the female. Yes, I have never experienced that me personally, but I know it happens a lot. Um, but I do like um, sometimes I feel odd about using like introducing myself as Dr. Julia McKelvin. Um, I still, I still find it like it has an odd ring to it. I'm like, oh, that's because you're not used then, to it. Because I'm not used to it, and then I, and then I remind myself, you know what? You've gone through five years of what you've been through these five years, and it's just this little one thing. You deserve it. Use it. Keep saying it. The more you use it, the more it feels like natural. Exactly. Yes. So let's actually talk a little bit more about your PhD. In what? Did you go out and interview women about their experience? How did you find the experiences to analyse whether they were good, neutral or bad experiences? So I had a mixed method study. Um, So I was collecting different types of data. I collected, I had interviews to collect my qualitative data with women and I also had questionnaires, mm-hmm. which were distributed when women were about 34 weeks pregnant. And then again, when they were 12 weeks after the birth. Right. And my interviews were held um, 12 weeks after the birth. And I had asked women at that stage, you know, how do you rate your birth experience from a scale of one to 10? And do you rate your birth as positive, neutral or traumatic? And then I interviewed different women, depending on how they classified mm-hmm. their birth and so I had fortunately all my interviews were pre-COVID excellent yeah um, so I had a different number of interviews you know in women's homes or on the telephone depending on what they preferred and I had um, questionnaires coming in through the mail and online as well um, so that's how I had collected my um, my data I remember it was a challenge um, to recruit women, um, I used to sit uh, at a scanning at the scanning department nearly on all my off days from yep. work. So nearly like three or four days a week for four months, for four straight months, and that oh, was wow. very long. It was very long because so I had to travel over an hour and a half yep. to go to the center. Um, anyway, um, so that's how I collected my data, and then that's. From my analysis point of view, I sort of like grouped women to whether they had a positive and neutral or traumatic birth. And then I compared compared different um, findings like, you know, their health and well-being um, and the level of expectations that were met between the different groups. And I did the same thing with regards to the interviews. But when I started that with the interviews, I started to group them. And there was lots of overlap in the in the data uh, mm-hmm. from an experienced 
So I didn't, in the end, I ended up not grouping um, the qualitative data and I just explored it as one unit right. um, in how diff- women experienced birth. And then the almost like the sub themes came from there. So did you, was that more narrative or still thematic? We did a t- two-pronged approach. So initially it was, was very na- it was very thematic. So we found that women interpret their birth depending on what happens during pregnancy, at the time of birth, and after yep. the birth as well. Okay. So women started interpreting um, how they how they experience birth, even for for instance from the stories which they hear during mm-hmm. pregnancy, how they approach birth themselves, how well prepared they feel. So we had that as one theme, so to speak. And then they also obviously reported how, the, what about the care that they received mm-hmm. during childbirth and how they looked back upon their birth um, in the postnatal period. So those were the three broad themes. Um, but then afterwards, um, we started to see that there were almost like very much similarities in how women experience a positive or neutral or traumatic birth in in terms of a number of things, um, such as, you know, how much their needs were met, mm-hmm. um, how vulnerable they felt approaching the birth and how well they were able to look back on their birth from a comprehensible, manageable way. So then we had a sort of like a case study analysis for the different experiences um, because there were very clear similarities on the women who experienced a positive depression and a traumatic birth. So we presented the data, the qualitative data, into two in, in two different ways. Did you find a difference between what you thought were the, the reasons for a positive birth and a traumatic birth in your master's to what you actually found in your PhD or did the PhD support the findings of your master's um not so much no because in my master's i didn't really look into women with positive births or even neutral births so all, so all that was new and then even for the traumatic uh, the traumatic was very much similar to be honest the impact which the traumatic birth had on women was very much the same what i did learn in addition to the to in my master in my in my phd was the impact that birth plans had mm-hmm. on the women who were, were who had experienced a traumatic birth and how much the impact that unmet expectations had yeah. on the women um, in comparison to other women. So from a traumatic point of view, there were really no particular surprises um, from that end. It was mostly for the other perceived experiences that the surprises so came. having a birth plan is a good thing and having an idea of a realistic sense of expectation would be a good thing. So from my study, mm-hmm. um, all the women who had a positive birth, all of them consciously decided not to have a birth plan. Oh, okay, that's different. Oh, wow. Yes, so they felt that having a birth plan was setting them up to fail. Oh, that's interesting. Because they felt like this is an event which you can't control. Yep. So you so you cannot have a very robust, strict birth plan. So they instead they had an idea of what they wanted mm-hmm. or what they didn't want, but they were open to being flexible. Nice. And that's why they wanted to read a lot about what may potentially happen or what the expect what expectations are reasonable to have mm-hmm. um, to protect themselves um, from being you know unhappy or traumatized by having so many unmet expectations. Whereas all the women who had a neutral or a traumatic birth, they all had a birth plan and they attributed the neutral experience to the fact that they had this birth plan but it wasn't quite met and they're disappointed by it right however let's look at the bigger picture what what they reported that there's a reason why things didn't work out the way they planned there's a reason why my birth plan wasn't met um there's a reason why i'm here today and everything is well and good now so i look at that and that's 
not as bad as I thought. Yeah. Whereas for women who had a traumatic birth, you know, it's nothing is still, um, they were upset by the fact that their plans were not met, obviously, and the other things. So, yes, the birth plan was a a particular surprise, um, a a very particular surprise, and so much so that now we're undertaking further research to try to understand, I'm, I'm trying to understand what women actually want from birth plans or if they want something different. Because like mm. the women in the study who were having a positive birth, they, they wanted to talk about what they wanted for their birth. They want to have a discussion about it. They didn't just want to have a tick box exercise yeah. and say, I want this, I don't want this. So I'm undertaking further research now to understand that a bit further. So that true autonomy and that true partnership. But in a way, it still is a plan, but it's a plan that is flexible through rationale not a plan that is dogmatic, you will do this, we will say this, we're not going, and, yeah, that unexpected, unrealistic reality kind of coming in. Exactly, and I think that's where the expectations come in and those conversations and that partnership with the woman where, yes, of course, you will have a discussion about what women want to achieve Mm. in their birth, but as you said, it's not something which is dogmatic, but it's more of a flexible conversation and having those realistic um discussions about what can or can't be achieved because there might be things which are completely outside of our control whereas there are things which are very much within our control and I think that's the difference. Did you find any significant difference with the positive kind of neutral and traumatic with the model of care or was it kind of you had good in all and you had neutral in all? In terms of care, um, what I found was that women who had a positive birth, they all reported the midwife's presence mm-hmm. and how midwife never left the room. They were all, She was always there when they needed her and they found that it's a huge comfort, her continued presence. Whereas for the other groups, they didn't report that. Mm. Um Women who had a neutral birth still reported, and even, even the women who had a traumatic birth still reported that women, the midwives were kind and they were compassionate, but they didn't express the comfort that they received from the midwife in the same manner in that we felt reassured that if I open my eyes, the yeah. midwife's going to be there in that continued presence. So many of these women um did not have continuity of care uh, from the midwife um but the women who had that continued presence mm. in the in the room from the midwife those are the ones who were able to express the importance of the midwife in that manner that's quite a huge kind of finding really isn't it i th- i think so because it's all well and good having that continuity of care and having a familiar face um, in childbirth. But if that familiar face is mostly outside by the desk checking the monitors, then it, it seems like it, it seems to lose its value. What women want, as we, as we always knew, this is nothing new, is that feeling of reassurance and safety net mm. from the midwife. And, and I think, and that was something else which I have, which I found, the women who experienced a traumatic birth, those were the fa- ones that feared for their life, as we know, mm-hmm. or for the life of their baby. That safety wasn't yeah. secured by any healthcare professional, and they felt alone in in overcoming that fear. Whereas the other, all the other women, they did fear at some point. Of the ch- of the childbirth, whether it was because of pain or having a forceps or having an emergency C-section, they did fear, but they always felt secured and supported by that midwife who was present with them. So, if you man- imagine Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. uh, the bottom yep. need was always met yep. by the women who experienced a positive or a neutral birth, but women who had a traumatic birth, that bottom need was not met. So it was difficult for the rest of the needs yeah. 
to be met. Whereas, for example, for women who had a positive birth, all of their needs were yeah. met. And so they were able to have the transcendental birth. Was there anything else out of the results that surprised you, either positive or negative? I would say it was the induction of labor. Okay. So most women who had a neutral birth, they were induced. And it seemed to have shaped their birth experience because most of the time they reported how they were left alone devices, they were left alone. Um, they were in pain or scared, but there was no one to address their needs. And they understood why that was the case. You know, there's only one midwife working with seven women who are being induced. They're all so busy. They're, they're constantly running around. They don't have time to come, get to me. Yeah. But they still wanted care mm. in mm. the same way that they got the care when they were in active labor, so to speak. But because they didn't, they felt alone, they felt vulnerable. Um, they they weren't able to report their birth as being positive. Yeah. I remember one woman, she was very, very clearly explaining how she went to her antenatal classes and they talk about the importance of the environment and being calm yeah. and being in this secure place. And then suddenly you're thrown into this room with just a... Sh- with just a sheet just a curtain between other women and it's nowhere near calm it's nowhere near quiet it's not dark it's it it's going against everything which they've told you about Mm. during pregnancy and then suddenly need to adapt to this completely opposite environment and and you just can't rest you can't allow your body to do what it needs to, Mm. to do um, so it, it, I was surprised um, from that, not in the sense that it had an impact, but just how much of an impact mm. it had, especially since in the UK, um, we don't have any guidance to say that during the induction of labor, women should have continuous one-to-one mm. care, for example, or anything similar to make sure that they're supported. Um, but yet, obviously, it's having such a significant impact well, maybe that's where some of your study can come to in the future is actually to help change those guidelines so that yeah. every woman, regardless of whether she's doing physiological or induction, and we know that the, when you start induction, you've got an increased chance of that cascade of interventions. So if you're going to have those interventions, you're going to need to have more support, be it physically and emotionally. Exactly, yes. And especially because most of these women were women who had a neutral birth. So at the end, we tend to ask women, you know, did you have a good birth? Did you have a bad birth, so to speak? And it's, did it, they don't report they had a bad birth, didn't have a mm. good birth. They're stuck in the middle. Mm. So they're sort of like lost in the system. But equally, these women were still struggled with their mental health, mm. accepting what happened, their anxiety. Um, and... PTSD symptoms, even though they never themselves reported a full-blown traumatic Mm. birth because they felt that they could understand, they comprehended what happened, why it happened, and they still found meaning from their birth. So potentially those women need that emotional support, but we're not reaching them Mm. because we don't know if they exist. Did you think that we need to get better at debriefing after all births? I think so. Because even the women who had a positive birth, they wanted to talk about it. They wanted to talk about their positive birth in the same way that other women wanted to talk about their birth. They all had a different reason why they wanted to, whether it's to try to help them understand what happened, to find the meaning, um, to to get the support they required or to be as a beacon of hope for other women who might either be pregnant or t- and terrified because of how birth is portrayed on the media and on social media, so to be a, a beacon of hope for them. So I do think that, yes, women, all women, should have the opportunity to talk about their birth, how they experience it, what it means to them, and whether they do need any support or share their support with others. I do think so, yes. So what are you doing kind of like 
post-PhD? What other areas are you exploring into? Well, actually, um, I think that during my PhD, I actually found a love for education. And once again, this was because my supervisor, um, she asked me to teach a session uh, around parental mental health, and I realized how much I loved it. And once again, finding these um, these findings of the importance of the presence of the midwife with the laboring women, I figured if I can pass on my passion to to be that person mm-hmm. to all the other students who are young and fresh, and they can be the change in the world. Um, so I decided to go into education. And so even now, most of my research is a balance between research and education for midwifery students yeah. and research for midwifery. So as I said earlier, I'm doing this research on understanding women's needs in terms of birth planning, but I'm also undertaking research around students' need for continuity of supervision and practice. Yeah. Um, because we I've already undertook research to explore students' experience um, of supervision and practice, especially post-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And students highlighted that without um, continuity of supervision, it has it's having a significant impact on their mental health, their desire to remain in the profession, and also their level of competence and confidence in actually providing care. Um, so I wanted to understand those issues further, particularly with regards to continuity, because it makes sense that we're yeah. saying, you know, women need continuity of midwifery care. Why don't students hmm. get continuity of supervision? And because both the midwives and the students felt that without continuity or a level of resemblance of continuity, both parties felt that they couldn't quite assess or determine at which stage students were and how comfortable they were yeah. with different skills. Um, so yes, my research is sort of like diver- diverging a little bit into the women's side and also student needs side. And you've also been involved in um, some simulation training, which is one of my loves, um, between midwifery and paramedic students. Yes, I blame my husband for that. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> my husband is an emergency medical practitioner. He's from South Africa. Oh, cool. And he now in the UK is a registered paramedic and his baby is simulation. And we both wanted to do some research into simulation because we both noted that students seem to love it. Yep. Um, but equally, we don't we didn't quite know. The, the full impact of having immersive simulation. Yeah. So we wanted to do some research on immersive simulation. So what we did um, is that we had the regular skills and sessions run for basic life support training for both midwives and paramedic students. And then we had this, this exact same thing, but this time in an immersive scenario where you had sound in the background yep. and moving um walls and things yep. a full mannequin yep. instead of a torso and all those and we looked at how it changed students confidence levels mm-hmm. and it, it it had a it made an impact um i remember that we then did another one which we haven't published um this time in shoulder dystocia and how shoulder dystocia is managed I remember the the midwifery students highlighting that for the first time they feel like they can go out there and manage the solar dystocia um, because of practicing it in an immersive environment. And we have come a long way since mm. then. We have implemented the new practice in at least in the midwifery program. Um, so we escalate the training which students get where, for example, for breech birth, we might start off with a pelvis and a baby. Yeah. With progresses to a, a model and then we intervene and prompt the students as we go along but then by the end they're being thrown basically oh, and that's 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 good scaffolding that's your horizontal your vertical your exactly. spiral scaffolding so they exactly. have the technical skills the cognitive skills and then you increase the fidelity to exactly. match something that is going to be comparative to when they're actually kind of working 
Exactly, yes. And it, it's still something which I enjoy and which I love and which we're continuing to do some research around simulation um, and at which stages um, we can start to increase fidelity and things mm. like that. Um, but it's a, still a fetus. <laughs> well, we had we just had um, a meeting with some of our student reps and it was quite interesting. It was a third-year student rep, so at the beginning of our academic year, so semester one, third year, they've got kind of one, 12 months to finish. And they were saying that they love The Sims, but it's too calm. They need the yelling. And I said, excellent, we're going to ramp it up next semester. Don't you worry. We're going to put the third years in with the second years and get the second years to play the the woman with the the torsos and the partners and increase everything. And we will do it kind of really noisy. But, yeah, they were asking for that increased level of of immersion which we thought yeah we're we're already planning for it but it was interesting they were asking for it i think we sometimes fall behind a bit as um educators as facilitators um that we want to protect students yep. in the classroom but we sometimes need to remember that out there when they're in practice when the emergency does happen you know it's going to be different. It's going to be yeah. very different from having a torso. So even though we will never be able to simulate it to the same extent, I think we do need to create that psychological fidelity a lot more, create that anxiety as long as there's the briefing after each yeah. session to support the students. I think that's the way forward in terms of simulated education. We need to in- enhance not just how realistic the, the the mannequin might be but how the student is actually feeling at the time was well, I remember the student saying oh I suddenly felt under pressure having to make a decision on what to do next well yeah that's what you're going to be doing in practice <laughs> exactly, exactly and and we do get some students who say oh I'll just ask someone but there won't always be right. someone right. or that someone might be thinking oh there'll be someone I'll ask and you'll end up in a situation where neither of you know yeah so it is important to, I think, yes, to make students feel like that, um, to make sure that the public is well protected in the mm. end. So what would you like to do next in the future? What's kind of sitting there teasing you, kind of like sitting there, oh, if only I had the time or, or I'm, I'm working slowly towards that direction? You know what? I've had a little, I had a little boy a year ago. Yay. And, yeah, and I feel like, Finally, after all those years of studying and immersing myself in education and pl- and training and all that, I get to have family time. Yeah, and I'm fully embracing, fully embracing being a mom yep. and spending time with my husband and my boy. Uh, so, even though I I'm getting really excited about research, particularly for students, I think I really want to make a difference for student midwives. And I hope that my research can make a difference um, nationally and hopefully internationally. Um, I'm enjoying being a mom and I'm just embracing that being. I'm just being at the minute and enjoying it. Well, there's a, I think that's one of the critical parts of our roles is we, we are helping there with the journey. We're helping there at the time of birth. But also we kind of leave the women, hopefully, with a solid bonding and attachment so that they can, and kind of emphasising this is a moment in time you'll never get back, to spend this time and enjoy this time and to, because when you're older, you're not going to be going, I wish I worked longer. It would be, I wish I hadn't missed this and I wish I had to have spent more time with the kids and everyone you talk to, when they look at it, it's like, no, I wish I'd actually done it differently and I hadn't worked as long. So you're doing the right thing. You're in the right place. (laughs) <laughs> I actually didn't think about it that way but yeah I actually did reduce my working hours uh, as in like I still work my full time yeah. but I don't come home every day and work till midnight every day yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the extra working uh, hours yeah the extra working hours yes uh, so yes I'm just embracing being a mom and enjoying my time every second I can get with him um, and with my husband because he's amazing um, so I'm enjoying it and yeah. they grow up so fast at that age too. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, he took his first step, and the next day he was climbing up the stairs. <laughs> how, how? How so quick? <laughs> it's like, stop, let me enjoy. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It was it was nice actually talking about you about my work. I haven't talked about it in a bit. And this is, I think we. This is why the joy of this kind of podcast is, it's focusing on you and what you've done, and we forget with everything and all the pressures to just sit back and actually enjoy the journey, or reflect yes. on the journey. You know what? As I said earlier, I will do it again. It was amazing. I loved my PhD journey, even though yes, I did feel very isolated, <laughs> but I would do it again. I think. I like the findings. I, I like the fact that something came out of it. As from all projects, something's going to come out of it, which is going to help the women in our care. And at the end of the day, that's what we're here for. And so, yeah, I would definitely do it again. Nothing stopping you. Nothing stopping you. You can always do one when he's back in school. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. You'll find all the links on Twitter, Instagram, and on the podcast website. If you are a midwife and you would like to share your research, your postgraduate studies, or even the quality improvement projects you are doing now, then email me at throughthepinard at gmail.com. Send me a tweet or send me a DM.